So by now, um, you've got your copy of God's Word and you're in Hebrews chapter 13. Congratulations, you've made it to the last chapter. We're in chapter 13 beginning in verse 7 today. We'll continue through verse 14. The first 12 chapters of Hebrews is is a lot of theology uh, about the fact that Jesus is a better Savior than all the other rivals that the world would give us, that He alone has conquered sin and death and given us a clean conscience through His blood. He's the final sacrifice of the Old Covenant. So why would we look anywhere else other than Jesus? And if we're looking to Jesus, then chapter 13 is kind of like, well, this is what the Jesus life looks like. And we've already seen what it looks like in verses 1 through 6 with respect to our love for one another, with respect to how we think about marriage and conduct ourselves in marriage, with respect to how we think about money. We don't love money and the riches of this world. We love Jesus. And... That's not always easy, but we're reminded coming out of verse 6 that the Lord is our helper, and so we don't need to be afraid of of anything this world might do to us. Remember, uh, the book of Hebrews is written to a people facing persecution for their faith in Jesus. And so after these instructions about money and marriage and love in the church family, the author continues in verse 7 through 14, if you would hear with me the word of God. Remember those who led you who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate, meaning the gate of Jerusalem. So, let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. In this passage, the author is kind of like a commanding officer giving his final instructions to his troops. Or like a coach who's encouraging long-distance runners who haven't reached the finish line and they've become discouraged or distracted in the race by the obstacles they're facing. We are reminded Church, that it is the gospel that put us in the race toward Christ, and it is the gospel that keeps us in the race all the way to the finish line. So in these verses, we, we are getting some final instructions for finishing. And if we're going to finish this race that ends in eternity, that ends in the celestial city, that ends in the heavenly Jerusalem, that ends in the city that, that nothing can destroy, to finish that race we see three things in this text. And the first thing we see in verses 7-10 through is that we must not be carried away from the unchanging faith in the unchanging Christ. There's, There's one faith that accesses Christ because there is one Christ. Hebrews has called us to endure in faith in Jesus alone because salvation, rescue from sin and death and eternal destruction because of our sin, salvation and rescue and deliverance from those things is found in Christ and in Christ alone. In verse 9, we're commanded, you'll notice I skipped verses 7 and 8. I'll come back, I promise. 
But verse 9 is sort of the punchline of, of why he's telling us to remember our leaders and, and that Jesus is the same because some strange and varied teachings are coming into the church. And in every generation down through the centuries, the world from without and the church from within, some who come into the church but aren't genuine believers, they'll try to add to the gospel. They'll try to say it's not Jesus only that saves you. It's Jesus plus some other stuff. And in fact, you really got to focus on this other stuff to be saved. And then Jesus just sort of takes a back seat and it becomes a, a contest. Who's the most spiritual? Who's done the most good? Who's the most prideful? Who's served the most? And the next thing you know, the church isn't talking about Jesus at all. So in verse 9, we're commanded not to be carried away by these various and strange teachings. The word carried away is a word that refer, referred often to a forceful wind or a forceful wave or current or storm. You see, if we leave behind Jesus as the source and the foundation of our lives, it's like building your house on the sand. Do you remember that parable? God said, who do you want to build your life on? you want to build your life on the rock of Jesus Christ crucified for you? Or do you want to build it on some sandy land? Take a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of good works, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And then the winds and the waves come and they batter you. And these things that you were placing your identity in, they slowly slip away. You thought you were uh, a good athlete and then something happens to you and then that goes away. You thought you were advancing your career and then some hot shot comes in from the outside and he takes your career path away from you. You got all the degrees and all the credentials and somebody finds out you're a Christian and they don't care about how smart you are anymore because Christians are crazy people and we don't want to deal with Christians and suddenly because you weren't anchoring your life in Christ the wind and the waves blow and they take you out because you didn't really anchor your life on Christ and Christ alone any teachings that deviate from the gospel or that are strange or foreign to the gospel, are forcefully destructive. They aren't minor little problems. They aren't, well, he's a pretty good guy, and I know he doesn't just talk about Jesus, but he talks about some other things, but that's okay. No, it is forcefully, powerfully destructive in the life of a church. In the case of the Hebrews, some were focusing on their, their food and what they ate rather than the gospel. It's most likely that He's referring to keeping Old Testament dietary laws. So there's some Hebrews, some Jewish people in the church, and they're like, well, you know, I'm eating kosher. And I saw that you had Oscar Meyer, but I had Hebrew National, so I'm better than you are. Hebrew National, by the way, are some amazing hot dogs, I'm just going to say. That's what, we, that's what we eat in the Palmer household, but... Uh, they were apparently seeking satisfaction in keeping Old Testament dietary laws rather than being nourished by the salvation that comes through the sacrifice of Christ alone, the living bread that He is that satisfies our soul. But the gospel, see the gospel church is not a message of what we can do to impress God. It's not a message of what we can do to deserve God or get to God. It's a message of what Christ did to open up access to God through His own blood. It is the message that the only one who could overcome sin against God is God. And God came down and did it. He left heaven, He wrapped Himself in our humanity, He lived a perfect life and took our place on a cruel cross to pay for our sin. We are saved not by what we do, but through faith in what God has done for us and accomplished for us at the cross through Christ. Period.
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it this way, By grace you have been saved. It's a completed work of God through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not a gift that you earn because you worked for it for 25 years at the company. A pure gift that you did not deserve. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, that, so whether it is insisting that people eat Hebrew nationals and not Oscar Mayer, or anything else that draws our attention to ourselves as the basis of our salvation, we have to be careful and watch out for varied and strange or alien foreign teachings that undermine the gospel and lead us to boast in ourselves. Paul was so concerned about this that in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, he says, look, if I know I've preached the gospel to you, but if somebody else comes back, if I come back to you and preach a different gospel than the one I've already preached, don't listen to me. If, a, if an angel from heaven should come and give you a gospel that's contrary to the gospel that I've already preached to you, then don't listen to it. You see, it's often been said that variety is the spice of life. But when it comes to the gospel, variety is the kiss of death. Some people want to accept so many different ways of getting to God but it is only through Jesus Christ, His Son, that we can be adopted and washed and accepted and cleansed and forgiven. Today, you say, well, well, what strange teachings do we have today? Because not many people are running around talking about eating kosher. I mean, I wasn't really struggling with uh, Old Testament kosher laws when I, when I came in the building this morning. So, so help, me, help me connect this to my life. Well, what other substitutes do you have in your life for Jesus? What are you feeding and nourishing yourself with that really just isn't satisfying? And in the world today, the whole gospel is really being undermined by a strange belief that says that humans are basically good and decent and that we're progressing and discovering more about ourselves and that to be saved, even, even if we ever need to be saved, it's not that we need to be forgiven of our sin. We just need to acknowledge that this is the way I am and the way I am is pretty good because I'm a good person. Hey, are y'all tracking with me? You know what I'm talking about? It, it's this language of acceptance, and we want to be accepted, but not on the terms of who we are. The Bible tells us we're rebels to the will of God, that we're aliens and strangers to, the, to, the, to God's plan and God's purposes. We're outside of being among His people because we are by children. We are, we are by nature children of wrath. We are against God at our, the very core of our being. We're little sinners. And, and the, the remedy is not to say, well, that sin's okay, and that sin's okay, and that sin's okay, and we're all okay. If, we, if that's our gospel, it sounds really nice, but the problem with that as the gospel is it misses the reality that our sin is so terrible and so awful and so warping and so twisting that Jesus had to come down and die for it. If we're all okay, then why do we need Jesus? You see, the world's agenda is best captured by the plus sign. The plus sign at the end of a long string of letters, however many letters you want to put in there to, to capture what your malady or your condition or your preference is, the plus sign says, look, whatever we come up with is going to be good. 
It says we are our own gods. We are masters of our own destiny. We are free to change whatever we want to change about our lives and live however we desire without any consequence. The world is looking for salvation in a plus sign, but it only comes through the cross of Christ. We are not saved by adding new categories of sin into the acceptable column. We are saved by Jesus who came down to cancel our sins and make us new. Salvation doesn't come by addition, it comes by substitution. Jesus in my place, taking my sin, giving me God's righteousness and His life forever. Which means that Jesus plus anything else that you think can satisfy you equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing else equals everything you will ever need. This is why verse 7 commands us to remember and keep on remembering those who led us and to imitate and keep on imitating their faith. When we are tempted to throw in the towel and to abandon faith in Jesus or embrace teachings that undermine what Jesus has done, we've got to look back to our leaders who spoke the Word of God to us and lived it out. God gives leaders to the church to keep the church anchored in the gospel, declaring the gospel, living the gospel, programming toward the gospel, scheduling and calendaring and budgeting toward the gospel. The reality is, this morning, I have approximately 30 minutes to counter the hours of lies that you will see and hear on your phone and on your television and over your computer this week. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that God gives pastor teachers to the church so we won't be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and who operate in craftiness and deceitful schemings. The call to remember the leaders of the past is likely because some of the leaders have died for their faith. And others have likely been carried away from the church into prison because of their faith. And if you think that can't happen here, I don't think you're paying very much attention. When adversity comes, we look to those who were so convinced of God's Word that they lived it out and paid whatever price had to be paid to honor their King. Because they weren't looking for satisfaction in this city. They were looking to the city to come. And why must we do this? Why do we have to stay resolute in the unchanging gospel? Why do we have to endure hardship and adversity if we must in order to be faithful to Jesus? The answer is clear and it's in verse 8. It's a verse that we should all memorize and it's so simple to memorize. It's because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God who made it all, Jesus, came down to redeem it all through His blood. And when we get to eternity, we will not sing of what we did. We will not boast in deeds that we have done. We will glory in the cross. The One who made it all, we rebelled against. He came to redeem it all. And those who trust in Him for all eternity will rejoice in the same saving power of Jesus who gave His life to make us His own. Because Jesus never changes. The call to run the race with endurance does not change. Because Jesus does not change, the basis of our salvation does not change. Because Jesus does not change, the sort of life that pleases Jesus does not change. In every century, every country, every climate, every culture, the fundamentals of what it means to please Jesus 
do not change. At church, in marriage, at work, at play, we live for Him because He does not change. In a world that wants to rip us away from the unchanging Christ, we keep relying on God's unchanging Word. In a world that wants to make it about what we can do to improve ourselves and change ourselves in our own power. Instead, we rest in the unchanging Christ who alone has the power to produce lasting change in our lives. In an ever-changing world, salvation is found in the never-changing Christ. Which means, secondly, that rather than being strengthened by foods, by career advancement, by our degrees in the boardroom, in the bedroom, in the locker room, wherever it is that you are seeking your satisfaction other than Christ, it means, folks, in verse 9 and 10, our hearts must be strengthened not by those substitutes, but instead by God's grace, which comes only through the sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 9 tells us, following the Old Testament laws did nothing to strengthen hearts to live for Him. They were eating kosher foods, but they were, they were ignoring Christ. I, I doubt anyone here is tempted to turn to Old Testament dietary laws as a substitute for Jesus. But I've got to tell you, as a pastor and a, a Christian in my own life, I, I've sensed it in my own life, I have sensed that after trusting Jesus, after saying, Jesus, I'm going to rely on you completely and wholeheartedly and dependently, then we stumble and we get off and we're like, you know what, maybe I could just be a new century Pharisee. Maybe I could just make up my own rules and my own checklist. And rather than really taking it to God in prayer, rather than relying on what Christ has done for me at the cross, I'll just keep my own spiritual scorecard. Any of you ever done that? And then we keep the scorecard thinking God owes us something. Well, I, I, I didn't speed this week. You know? I did what my wife asked me to do this week. It was a good week in the home. I spent some quality time with the kids. I didn't use a single wordy dirt this week. I went to church, went to Bible study, read the Bible every day this week. I memorized some scripture. Man, I am good. No, you're not. But Jesus is amazing. You see, these can be good and God, you say, well, what's wrong with those things? Those were all, that was a pretty good list, Pastor. That's, in fact, some of those are on my list. What, what's wrong with that list? Shouldn't we memorize Scripture? Shouldn't we read the Bible? Yeah, we should do all that. But none of that is the basis for your salvation. Jesus is the basis of your salvation. You can do a bunch of good and God-pleasing things, but if you're doing the right things for the wrong reasons, you're still going to be spiritually starved in your life. You can go to all the right places, do all the right things, and the motivation is to impress or to look good or get something from God that's already been given to you. And God's like, I already gave it to you. The motivation for living for God is what we've already been given, not what we need to get from God. We can't get anything more from God than His Son. Trying to have a relationship with God based on a behavior management scorecard is kind of like eating Chinese food. I love to eat Asian food. It's delicious. But man, after about an hour, I get home and I'm raiding my pantry, getting a big old, I call it a schlog of peanut butter. I don't know what you call it. I just get a spoon and I just go and eat that peanut butter because I'm hungry all over again. There you go. That's for you, brother. Schlog of peanut butter. <laughs> to be truly strengthened in the Christian race, 
we've got to be strengthened not by foods, not by career advancement, not by our behavior management scorecard. We've got to be strengthened by the grace of God. We've got to stop covering up our sin and start confessing our sins so that we can know how much it cost Jesus to die in our place. Look at verse 9. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. So many Christians are heart sick because they've been trying to strengthen themselves and their hearts, the core of who they are with behavior modification rather than being overwhelmed and captivated and moved and motivated and changed by the grace of God. Why do we sing gospel songs? Why do we pray gospel prayers? Why do we worship together and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith? Because that's where our hope and our help comes from. The sole satisfaction that the believer needs comes only through God's grace in Christ at Calvary. In Jesus, we've already been crucified for our sins, Galatians 2.20. In Jesus, we've already been buried for our sins, Romans 6.4. In Jesus, we've already been raised from spiritual death to a whole new way of seeing and living, Ephesians 2.6. In Jesus, we're already seated in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6. In Jesus, we've already been forgiven and adopted and cleansed and represented as His children, children that He will never leave nor forsake, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. And all of this is possible not because of a single thing that we have done, but all because of what Christ has done. It is all of grace. In verse 10, Hebrews again compares the old and new covenants, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and the final sacrifice of Jesus. And he's telling the Hebrew church, look, you've got to decide. If you want to go back to the Old Covenant, then you don't get to feast on Jesus. Because the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was not available to be eaten by the priest. It was taken outside the camp. The blood was spilt and offered in the tabernacle. But then the sacrifice which bore the sins of the people was burned outside the camp. We read about that in Leviticus chapter 16. And here's the point that Hebrews is making. If you want your sins to be paid for, you need a sacrifice that can feed you and nourish you on the inside, that can really be food for your soul. And the only one that can satisfy you is not all those animals who were sacrificed year after year after year after year after year in the Old Covenant. The only one that will satisfy your soul is the one that puts an end to the Old Covenant and the requirement of death because He conquered death and was raised for you. And if you go out to Jesus and feast on that sacrifice, you'll be filled day in and day out. Stop looking at yourself and start looking to Jesus. For it was Jesus who says in John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Not meaning that you literally eat his body, but he's literally going to go to the cross and hang in your place. The eating isn't literal, it is a colorful way of describing the grace that believers enjoy through faith in Jesus who gave Himself as a sacrifice for sin. And we remember that, and we celebrate that, and we will in just a few moments in the Lord's Supper. At the cross, Jesus endured, excuse me, Jesus ended God's demand for our lives by dying in our place and being raised to give us life everlasting. At the cross, He bore our sin. At the cross, He suffered in our place. At the cross, He offered Himself as the final offering to God on our behalf, satisfying the wrath of God so that all of our sins could be forgiven. And it is that reality, the reality of grace, that gives us hope. 
and nourishment for daily life in a world that is so set against Christ. It is this reality, this reality of grace that changes our direction and our destiny and our desires and causes us to look to the city to come rather than the city that is eroding and being destroyed in the here and now. Church, we've got to abandon any illusions of our own worthiness in order to feast upon Jesus alone who can feed our weary and hungry souls. So many people are trying to earn God, deserve God, be worthy enough for God, and that's not where you find God. You know where you find God and find the love of God? In the worship and adoration of Jesus. So stop trying to pretend that you'll ever be worthy and just start worshiping the only one who is. And watch what God does to your weary soul. Thirdly, if we're going to finish the race, we've got to go to Jesus. And we've got to bear His shame, His reproach, as we seek the heavenly city to come. The Bible's pretty clear that the world's not getting better. We think we're so sophisticated and so advanced and we're progressing and we've got technology that we didn't used to have in the past and we're so smart. But you know what? We keep repeating the same mistakes. We keep making culturally and as a civilization, we're not advancing. If anything, we're declining. But that's okay. Because our hope isn't fixed here. It's fixed in the heavens. And when Jesus breaks the eastern sky, brings the heavenly city down and gives us a new heaven and new earth, those who have trusted in Christ will be there to reign and be with Him forever and ever. In verse 11, we are reminded that the sacrifices on the annual day of atonement were burned outside the camp, away from where God's people were, because you couldn't have the uncleanness around the people. And then in verse 12, we see uh, amazingly that Jesus was treated as an unclean animal. He bore the sins of His people and had to suffer outside the gate like an animal of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He suffered outside the walls of Jerusalem, away from civilization, away from the hubbub of life. He suffered there outside the gate so that sinners who were inside the gate could be made clean and free from their sin. Not through the blood of an animal who would, we'd have to find another one to be sacrificed again later, but through His own blood. The reason Jesus did this, do you see it in verse 12, was to sanctify us, to set us apart as a holy people, to make us stand out as God's people in a world that is opposed to Christ, to make us clean on the inside, and to give us access to God, not just once a year, but 24-7, 365. He suffered outside the city of Jerusalem. And do you know what Jerusalem means? It means city of peace. He went outside the city of peace so that you could have peace with God in your heart. He went outside the city of peace and was treated like an unclean animal where he spilt his blood to cleanse you and redeem you so that you could have ongoing access to the king of Jerusalem forever and ever. You see, we are already citizens of that heavenly city. We, we saw that in Hebrews chapter 12. We're already citizens. We already belong there. And yet the city is not a city we yet see. It is coming it will be visible when our king returns, and it will never be conquered. It will never be destroyed, verse 14. And that's the city we fix our eyes and affections and hope on. So what do we do 
verse 13. What do we do when the world is set against us? When the world tells us to accept all these other things that satisfy and to run away from Jesus, the Savior, as the source of our soul satisfaction. What do we do? Look at verse 13. It begins with the word so or therefore. Because Jesus is that final sacrifice. Because He suffered outside the camp to cleanse you and redeem you and forgive you. What do we do as a result of that as a result of what he did to make us his to he was rejected and condemned for us what do we do we go out to him we go outside the camp you say well, what does that mean I'm, I'm not in jerusalem right now the earthly jerusalem but you're in civilization and what it means is to jettison or give up acceptance and popularity and fame To go and live for Jesus no matter what it costs you. To go to Jesus outside the camp is a call to be willing to suffer for His sake should life require it. If Jesus' food was to do the will of the one who sent Him, and you know what what the will of the Father was for Jesus? It was to go to the cross. And, And Jesus says, my food is to go to the cross to redeem people. So if Jesus' food led to suffering, we should not be surprised that when we feast on the one who suffered in our place, that we also will be called to suffer. Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Why? Because you are modeling the life of Jesus. Because you are showing there is something greater than this world could ever give, and it is to honor God who came down to rescue you. To go to where Jesus is means that our security on the eve of a very important national election is still not in the next election, but in the sacrifice of our King. To go to where Jesus is, students, means to go into your school and say, I'm not going to do or say the things that my peers say I have to do or say to be popular or on the in crowd. I'm going to stand and live for Jesus. I'm going to go outside the camp with Jesus. To go where Jesus is, parents, is to understand that our children are being fed lives from the world and to do everything we can to get the gospel and a Christian worldview into their head and into their hearts as soon as we can and never let go. To be vigilant in the rearing of our children. To go to where Jesus is means to bear patiently whatever alienation or separation from the world may come for serving Him. Knowing that God is going to cause us to stand out as His disciples because a sanctified and holy people is going to stand out in a wicked and wayward world. And you know what? If we resolve to stand out for Jesus who stood outside the camp for us, some people are going to notice. You see, suffering is a, it's not a fun thing. Being rejected is not a fun thing. But when you stand on the side of Jesus, your Savior, in the midst of suffering, people have to go, she really believes that. She really loves Jesus, her King. She had the whole world by the tail, but because she resolved to live for Jesus, she lost her job, she lost her income, she stayed at home with her kids when all the world said you should have taken that next step in your career. She made modifications in her life. He made modifications in his life. Why? Not because it made financial sense or any other kind of worldly sense, but because it was the way they honored Jesus. Let me ask you, church, what has a hold of your heart that rivals your love for Jesus? 
maybe the Holy Spirit would bring something to mind that you would just want to write down in your Bible or in your notes. What, what has a hold of my heart that rivals my love for Jesus? Is it the Hokies or the Who's? Is it your job and career advancement? Is it financial security, your family or your home? Whatever it is, Jesus' people are going to be tested. And the question that comes on the test is this. Will you stand for Jesus when it means suffering for His sake? Or will you compromise with the world for comfort and convenience in the here and now? And evidence, church, that we are resting in God's grace is that we have abandoned our restless pursuit of the world's approval. I want to say that again. And evidence that we are resting in God's grace is we have abandoned our restless pursuit of the world's approval. And why can we do this? We can do it because Jesus eternally and fully satisfies every longing of the human heart. Have you gone out to Jesus? Is your soul satisfied in Him? Would you pray with me? King Jesus... You are so good. You satisfy in a way that nothing else can. But God, uh, beginning with myself, I confess, and I'm sure we would confess, that there are so many distractions, so many things competing for our attention, so many things competing for our affection. God, that often... We find our hope and our identity uh, not in the cross of Christ, but in in lesser things, things that are temporary and that are going to fade away. So God, we ask no matter what the future holds for us in our lifetime, God, no matter what shaking comes to our life, that, that you would, as you shake other treasures out of our life, God, that as we live more and more for Christ, that we would believe more and more and live more and more trusting that the treasure of Christ in our hand is all we really need. God, that if we have all the treasures of the world and don't have Jesus, we have absolutely nothing. But because we have Christ and Him crucified and risen in our place, we have access to the Lord. And that means we have everything. God, if there's someone here that doesn't know that hope, God, I pray you'd save them today. In Jesus' name. Amen.